Hello, welcome to Wide Left Sports. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Bobcat legend Travis Lule. How are you doing today, man? Mitch, I'm doing good, man. It's good to be on uh, the podcast here. I know we talked back a little bit and boom, we made it happen. <laughs> yes, it's awesome to uh, have you on and, you know, just get to talk to you about Bobcat football and all your life has had. This is an awesome journey you've had, so I can't wait for this. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you bet. It has been a journey. Yeah, it kind of came circle for me. So, <clears throat> for sure, for sure. So, I want to go kind of all the way back to what made you fall in love with football at the very beginning. Yeah, football. Well, I was just a sports junkie as a kid, right? And so, and my brother Tyler and I, who a lot of Bobcat fans would, would remember Tyler as well, he was a uh, played receiver at MSU a couple years after me. Uh, and we, we grew up in the country here in Oregon and we just loved sports. And so it was like, it wasn't like fall, winter, spring and summer for us. It was, you know, football slash soccer, basketball or baseball season, right? <laughs> That's just how it was. And, um, so really I didn't have a, like a favorite sport. I didn't try to specialize. I played three sports in high school. Um, and football just happened to be the one that was going to be my meal ticket to college. And so that's the one I just, I started to get recruited at. Uh, I love the game, love to compete. And, uh, we, you know, we did have a little bit of a football bug planted early because our dad and uncles at the local high school had won a bunch of state championships back in the seventies. And we heard all about it growing up. So we couldn't wait to play football at, at Regis high school, um, a little private Catholic high school here in, in, uh, in state and where I am right now, um, where we all wanted to go to high school, you know, where we all knew we were going to go there. So, so anyways, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it happened for me and, and why football became, uh, the sport I pursued in college and afterwards. That's awesome. So then talk to me a little bit about your recruitment and what ultimately made you choose MSU. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, the biggest thing, um, well, to be honest, so much of it's just about time and place and opportunity, right? And so I was, uh, as my high school career war went on, I started to get the the looks in football again, primarily, but I, I went to a small private high school here in Oregon. So it'd be like a Montana class B school. We had 175 kids, I think nine through 12 in my whole high school. So, you know, it's not a recruiting hotbed of the world. And uh, so the Oregon and Oregon States, uh, weren't like knocking my door down. Um, but I did start to attend some camps where all of a sudden I'm kind of at showcase camps and lining up next to these kids who are, you know, the big school kids. And some of them have pac 10 and mountain West offers. And I'm going, golly, I, I swear I stack up with these guys. I, you know, so that gave me the confidence, like, man, that guy got an offer from Washington state and that guy's got an Oregon state offer. And I'm standing here lining up right next to him and making all the throws and you know, that my competitive juices are flowing. So I just felt like I could, I could play at a higher level of college than kind of the, some of the small local area schools that were recruiting me initially. Um, but scholarships just didn't come. And it wasn't until I took a trip to Montana state and frankly got a credit Don Bailey, who was the recruiting uh, he was the offense coordinator at the time and he was recruiting Oregon and Washington and he was recruiting a kid in Portland. And he just said, I'm close enough. I'm going to swing by your school. I was on their radar somehow. He stopped by, watched a little film. And this was a couple of weeks after we had just played in the state championship game. And he said, who's recruiting you? I said, well, you know, Linfield college and Willamette university and Western Oregon a little bit. And he said, well, what about these schools? I said, well, not really. Portland state's called me a few times, but no scholarship. He said, 
we're officially recruiting you. I flew out to Bozeman that weekend, uh, met with the staff and Mike Kramer offered me a scholarship. So that's kind of how quickly it happened for me. I came home and I kind of used that as leverage uh, with Portland State. I remember calling Portland State and said, listen, you haven't offered me a scholarship. I kind of want to stay in, but Montana State looked really appealing and they offered me a scholarship and uh, they said, well, you know, we, that scholarship's still not quite available yet. And I said, okay, I'm committing to Montana State. And I just had good vibes about it, felt really good. The irony of the whole thing is uh, three days later, Portland State had a scholarship offer out to another quarterback and he committed elsewhere. And so now they were banging down my door saying, hey, we want you, we love you, you're next on our list. I said, I'm a Bobcat, guys. And so... Needless to say, it was fun beating them three out of the f- next four years. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine it's a little bit of karma for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was always fun. For sure. So, you know, you had a lot of great games while you were at MSU. And what are some that stick out in your mind still to this day? Uh, I mean, the Grizz games are the ones that stick most just because of the intensity of the rivalry and the history leading up to those. So that, that game my freshman year in 2002 in Missoula, um, is probably the one that sticks out the most. But, man, we had some some really cool, uh, especially some last-minute, late-game, heroic-type things that happened, right? We we beat Northern Arizona in a game in, uh, I think it was 2003, when they scored to go up 10 with, like, a minute and a half to play, and people started actually filing out of Bobcat Stadium. And we scored really quickly, and we got a perfect onside kick and Nate cook hit a perfect kick and Corey Smith fell on it. And we got the ball right back and we went down the field and scored again with 10 seconds or something left to play. So I think, you know, it was 17 to seven prior to that. And so we scored two touchdowns in a minute and a half. Yeah. It was double what we'd scored the rest of the game. Right. And we won and there were probably Bobcat fans in the parking lot and walking across, you know, the practice fields over to <laughs> their cars that missed out on a pretty exciting ending. Um, so that was, that was awesome. I mean, there was a game at Sacramento state too. I think my freshman year where we won on a, we got a, a penalty called on the last play. Um, and I just threw a ball up and there was a face mask call. And so we had one untimed down and we kicked that, you know, and so it's moments like that where, you know, people remember the, the Grizz game um, in Missoula in, in 02, but had we not won that game at Sacramento state, we wouldn't have been in a chance to, to win the big sky a couple of weeks later in Missoula, you know, so, so stuff like that was, was, was pretty darn fun. Um, one other game jumps out was the Northern Arizona game. I want to say it was my junior year. And in the first half, I think we scored a touchdown on every single possession. <laughs> and it was one of those days where like, I won't forget it. It was like, didn't matter what Don Bailey called. It was like, everybody was open everywhere. And then I was throwing it to him and everybody caught it. And that, you know, so we had a really big day, um, but it was just, it was a really fun, really a fun four years. And I just feel super lucky that I, I feel like Montana state landed in my lap and then just became one of the best decisions I ever made to say yes, to go out to Bozeman. So that's awesome. So then, you know, while you were there, you were obviously coached by a man that's personality is larger than life in coach Kramer. What was yeah. it like to have him as your head coach? <clears throat> it was awesome. Uh, you know, it really was. Krams was um, really well suited for a college program. He was a great, motivator i know his his tenure at msu ended a little bit on a rocky note but i gotta say you know like if it wasn't for him and don bailey uh, i don't know that i ever would have set foot on msu's campus um 
program needed that kind of energy that he brought. I mean, like you said, he was larger than life. He carried a room really well. There was a lot of bravado uh, in, in just the way he talked, but boy, the guy could get, um, you know, players up and ready to go play. And he believed in us. I remember, I remember that he always, you know, had my back in the media. Um, you know, where there were moments I remember going to my first game of my sophomore year, we played at Wyoming and I threw four picks after, you know, this great freshman year and I'm whatever. And then I, you know, that you hear about the sophomore slump and, and so, and, you know, and picks happen in football and some of them are my bad and some of them just happen. Uh, but Krams, you kind of defended me publicly and just, just gave a young quarterback confidence, you know? And so, um, you know, you don't forget that stuff. Um, but that's, it was all, we also knew that he probably opened a thesaurus in the morning and pointed to a new word and he was going to find a way to introduce that to the team in team meetings that day. So he'd throw <laughs> some other big word out every day and it was, it was always entertaining with Krams, but, uh, but I love the guy. <clears throat> that's awesome. So, you know, the Bobcats before you were kind of more of the traditional passer in the pocket and then you came along and were more of a dual threat. So is that something that just came natural to you or is that something that the coaches asked you to do? A little bit of both um, because I, I did, um, you know, when I was young, the players that I liked watching play uh, were quarterbacks that ran around. I liked, I liked Steve Young and Jeff Garcia and Randall Cunningham more than the, um, you know, the Drew Bledsoe's and Troy Aikman types. I just wasn't that I wasn't six, four, six, five, you know, two forty. Right. You know, and so, um, you know, and I had a good arm, but I didn't have the biggest arm in the world. That wasn't my talent. My my gift was my ability to run around and do some things. So, you know, it's like anything in life, whatever your time, talent and treasures are, you know, share those things. So if I could run around and make some plays with my feet, that's that's what I tried to do. And then as as that kind of naturally came to be, I mean, uh, the first couple of times I stepped on the field at MSU, um, I made some plays in, in scramble situations, um, got out and ran. And so that, you know, ultimately led to implementing some more draw plays. And then later on, even some um, some quarterback counter and some QB power stuff where we'd have a tailback lead blocking. And you see a lot more of that now um, than you did at that time, frankly. Um, but it, it really does gives you a numbers advantage. I mean, Montana State utilizes a lot of that right now. Current the current uh, offense at MSU between Tommy Mallott and Sean Chambers, those guys, you know, still making a lot of plays. A lot of those are designed quarterback play calls. So, um, so yeah. So that was kind of how that came to be. And I always had like a little bit of chip on my shoulder, right? The quarterback thing is like, oh, they wear the red jersey at practice, and I was like, I'm a football player. I'm not a quarterback. So <laughs> if I got to make some plays, you know, running uh, with my feet, I'm gonna do that. And so. Uh, you know, and it wasn't like a tough guy thing. It, it was just, it was the way that I could help a team win. Right. And so that's just, that's just what I did. And I just believed in what, you know, leaving it all out there. <clears throat> that's awesome. So then, you know, what did it mean to you to be a Bobcat and have the Montana state across your chest every Saturday? Yeah. Well, I'll say this. It it means even more as time goes on, you know, like, it, it, like I said, when I got there, it felt like it fell in my lap and this is just what you're doing. And, and some of this is just, you know, experience with age, um, the way you think about the world. But I, you know, I really do feel lucky that I got, I got to wear that jersey every week. Uh, you know, Montana State's a, it's a cool place. It's unique and really unique in FCS football, right? Um, in particular, because you know, here in Oregon, you know, the the college football scene is dominated by Oregon and Oregon State, and so right. you have a 
Bobcats Big Sky foe in Portland State, who, you know, there's really quality athletes there that sometimes get overshadowed by the, um, you know, the, the Pac-12 programs that are here in state. In Montana, we know that's not the case, right? It's you're kind of the biggest show in, in the state. There's no professional sport team there. Um, so the Bobcats and the Grizzlies, you know, are kind of the um, where the most eyeballs are in the sports world. So and that trickles down to the program and, you know, FCS crowds at Montana and Montana state are just entirely different than you see in most of the rest of the landscape in FCS. So, so, I mean, it was, it was really cool for me and it was, you know, regional for me and I'm a outdoorsy guy like the hunting and fishing scene. So Montana suited me really well, really well. Um, I made that our, my home after after college and w- my wife and I got married and we lived in Bozeman for a number of years those first few years after I was done with college and then you know just chased the football the professional football scene wherever it would take me for my first few years out so Bozeman still holds a special place in my heart we get back as often as we can I took my kids back to a game for the first time last fall so they could see the old stomping grounds and all that and we hiked the M and did the deal, you know? So um, they got little Bobcat girls growing up here in Oregon. That's awesome. So that kind of leads me to the next question. How neat is it now to go back to Bozeman and see what it is compared to what it was when you went to college? It's all well, two thoughts. One, it's awesome. And two, those guys are spoiled rotten, right? <laughs> they got it. They got it good right now. Uh, but it, no, it's super cool to see. Um you know, it's, it's like part of the vision that we had when we were there um, is seeing that stadium full, seeing a bigger stadium than we had, seeing facilities upgrades. Um, I, you know, when I was back last fall, they were just getting ready to like let the public see the, the new Bobcat athletic complex. So we got a little sneak peek and a little tour of the place. And it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, and again, when you, you talk um, particularly talk FCS football, I mean, there's very, very few programs in the country that that have what Montana State has. And um, so it's it's really cool to see. I think there's been good, really good leadership in the athletic department. They've hired good coaches. Um, those guys know how to recruit. They've built a really good brand. Um, the expectations are so different at Montana State now than they were when when I got there. You know, frankly, we you know, we were we had been a, a losing program the last few seasons. There was still a ton of pride there but it was a little bit more buried uh, than it is now. Now people are, and I've had people come up and tell me that, you know, years later that, man, it's just so good to be proud of the blue and gold. When I was a kid, I didn't want to wear my blue and gold to Christmas because my Grizz cousins were picking on me. And now, you know, the rivalry is in a really healthy place and the program's vibrant and all that stuff. It's, it's awesome. For sure. For sure. So then after your college days, you went to the NFL combine and performed pretty dang well. So what was that experience like? And how were you invited to that? And just how did that all go down? Yeah, I, I um, well, I got invited to play in a college all-star game um, right out of college. Or as soon as I finished my senior year, I, uh, and it was a one and done college all-star bowl game. It was called the Magnolia Gridiron Classic. I accepted an invite. And so I was down there and I was, it was Jackson, Mississippi. It was a week of Christmas, um, you know, and I'm just hoping to get some looks from scouts and whatnot who were there at practices and all that all week. And I got a call from um, from an agent group that was I'd been talking to that I ultimately ended up signing with. And they said, hey, we got the combine invite list. Your name's on the list. Congrats. You're going to the combine. And so for me, that was that was one that that gave me a little boost of confidence. Like, OK, well, enough scouts have seen me and they got an interest in in me doing this pro deal. Um, so it gave me a little jolt of, of, of confidence initially. And then secondly, 
you know, I was telling you back in high school when I was getting recruited and with the big school kids, it was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to be <laughs> at the combine with the guys, you know, playing in the SEC and Pac-12 and Big Ten and all that. And so let's go see how we measure up. And again, it was, I get there and it's guys I've seen on TV lead these big programs. I'm like, why? You know, I throw it harder than that guy. I'm taller than that guy. I jump higher than that guy. I'm faster than that guy. Shoot, I think I can do this, you know? And so it was kind of validation for me. Um, I ultimately didn't get drafted, but I did. Um, you know, I, I had enough scouts interested to just continue to kind of keep me in the pipeline in the pro world. That's awesome. And you know, for a few of those uh, drills, you did finish in the upper echelon. So you can say you finished better than those guys that are yeah. leading the big uh, programs on Saturdays. <laughs> Amen. Thanks for, thanks for looking that up too. I didn't have to say it myself. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. So then, you know, you <clears throat> mentioned you did go undrafted. So what was that process like? Yeah, I, um, I just remember hunkering down. I was in Bozeman. Um, back then the draft was two days, you know, now it kind of carries on and it has a little bit different format, but back then I think it was the first three rounds were on Saturday and the next four rounds were on Sunday. And so I was expecting some activity to happen on day two. I knew I wasn't, you know, wasn't going to be a, uh, one of the guys picked in the first three rounds, but I started getting calls um, Sunday morning as soon as the draft happened. And so then you're just kind of at the mercy of it all, sitting back and watching who's going to be the team. And I'd gone on a couple uh, pre-draft visits and, and had some looks. Um, you know, there was a couple of times when names got called where I was going, is that going to be me? You know, and my phone rang and, Hey, we might draft you if we got our spot available in the sixth round or in the fifth round, we might draft, we might take you here in the seventh. We got two picks left. And ultimately, you know, all the draft names came and went. And as soon as the draft ended, you know, so it initially goes from a little dis disappointment, like, Oh, darn it. And, and then as soon as the draft ended, phones started um, ringing and, you know, my agents calling and I'm, you know, feeling, talking to a scout here that I knew from the Seahawks and a scout that I knew from the Falcons and the bears. And, um, you know, so, and, and then they start throwing a little bit of, you know, money and talking uh, signing bonuses and, you know, obviously free agent signing bonuses, especially at that time, they're not what you read about in the newspaper for the right. guys on the first day of the draft, but it's, uh, it's, it's dangling a carrot for a broke college kid nonetheless. Right. And so, um, so I did get a, get a chance to kind of weigh some options and ultimately chose to sign with Seattle. They had showed some good pre-draft interest um, and it felt like West coast, uh, an offensive system that I would fit in at the time and, and all that stuff. So that's kind of how I made the decision to go, to go give it a go in Seattle initially. <clears throat> awesome. So then, you know, obviously you made the stop in Seattle, which I knew about, but what I didn't know is you went over to Germany and played. So yeah. what was that experience like? Yeah. Um, that was a great experience. And it was actually really important for me on my pro journey. Cause um, like I said, draft ended, I get into, I go into camp with Seattle and at the time, you know, I'm, I'm green. I'm like, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to outwork people. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to know this playbook inside and out. I'm going to make plays when I get chances to play. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make this team. It's kind of my mindset. Well, I get there and mind you at the time, Seattle had just lost in Super Bowl 40 to the Steelers months before that. All right, this was a well-oiled machine. Matt Hasselbeck was a ninth year pro. He's a perennial pro bowler. Sean Alexander's the reigning MVP of the league. There's like three all-stars on the offensive line. Like Mike Holmgren is the living legend calling plays. And so this, this is a team that isn't as worried about the back half of the roster as they are like gearing up to go try to make another Super Bowl run. So I get there and I'm there's five quarterbacks in camp 
and three of us stood around watching uh, Matt Hasselbeck and Seneca Wallace prep for the season is what happened. And so I'm going, well, these guys don't even know if I can play or not, right? And so um, towards the end of camp, it started to feel like these guys aren't going to keep me because they haven't seen me play, but I guess they'd seen enough. And they said, well, we, we're going to cut you now, but we do, we do think there's a chance for you to you know, be a Seahawk, so we need you to get a little bit more experience under your belt. We're going to re-sign you and send you off to NFL Europe. And so that's what happened. I had a few workouts that fall didn't end up signing with any of those teams. And as soon as the NFL regular season ends, you can sign a futures contract. And they just immediately signed me that January 1st um, and said, we're going to send you to NFL Europe. And at the time, NFL Europe was used essentially as a developmental league for the NFL. Um, so half of the guys on those rosters in Europe were allocated players by those NFL teams. And the other half were free agents. So half of us are down there as a member of the Seahawks or the Cardinals or the Falcons or whoever you're playing for. And the other half wanted to get into that, into training camp with an NFL team at the end. And so, so that's how it was for me. I went down there. I, I won the starting job in training camp. Um, you know, so I'm at the time I'm 23. So I'm still like, I'm still a young pro, you know, and, and saw a little success early on, um, you know, had some good games, had some growing pains, um, and so it was a really good experience. You know, you don't quite, it's not quite the Euro trip that some people think that it might've been because I'm just living in a hotel room with American guys, you know, <laughs> um, but it was a really fun trip uh, until the end, I banged up my shoulder. And so that was like the beginning of, uh, of a few injuries that I had through a pro career, but ultimately that shoulder led to a surgery. I missed the next season. So I didn't get to go back to Seattle and try to make that team the next year, which was my hope um, in going to NFL Europe and getting some seasoning, right? Um, so I spent that 07 season on the IR, and it wasn't again until the 08 spring I got cleared to play and then had a few more opportunities after that. <clears throat> That's awesome. So I have to ask, um, I'm obviously a Jucatella Raiders fan, but I'm also a Seahawks fan just because that's the area we're in. Um, what was it like to be in training camp with guys like Hasselbeck and Sean Alexander? It was, I mean, it was an awesome learning experience for me. It was, it was a, it was a, I mean, I knew that it would be a level up, but it was an eye opener um, just because of Matt's grasp of the offensive system. And to put it into perspective, I remember thinking this when I, when I got there, like I had only, I didn't even play middle school football or anything, right? I didn't play football until I was in high school. So I had, at the time I had eight years of football experience, four years of high school, four years of college. Matt Hasselbeck had been in Mike Holmgren's system for nine seasons already. <laughs> so, I mean, he'd been literally been calling these exact same plays for longer than I'd even played the game of football. So there was so much to learn. And, you know, fortunately for me, Matt was a good dude and I could pick his brain and I'd be in film going like, well, why'd you do this? Why did you check to this? What does that even mean? You know, uh, how did you make this protection adjustment? And it was, you know, second nature to him at that point in time. But, um, but that was, that was like really awesome. Um, I also, you know, learn how much stuff is, is system stuff, how much guys are set up and how much guys are naturally inclined at being like really good. Um, so you see the whole thing, right? Now I know oftentimes we think of the NFL as like every guy is just like a freak, but anybody who's been in those locker rooms will tell you, you know, there's eight or 10 guys that are those freaks that we think of the right. Calvin Johnson's and Lamar Jackson's and the guys who are just the freakish athletes. The rest of those team is made up of just really good football players. One way or another, they're, um, they're just really smart. Uh, they understand concepts. 
um, and they do the things they need to do to kind of separate themselves from other guys coming out of college. So, um, so it was, again, it was cool for me to see like, I like athletically, I, I think I can do this. I can play pro football. Um, and so it's just about, about preparing myself for whenever that opportunity comes. That's awesome. So then after the stops with the Seahawks and in Germany and all those, you ended up playing for BC in the CFL. So how did that come about? Yeah. So there's a little Montana connection here actually is uh Bob Obilovich, Butte, Montana. Bob was the general manager for the BC lions um, during my college years. So the way the CFL works is they have a, what's called a negotiating list, a neg list. Um, they can put college players and pro players on that list. And essentially what it does is a, if a player wants to come to the CFL, the team that holds their rights on that neg list gets kind of first dibs at you. So BC had put me on their neg list um, early on in my college career, like unbeknownst to me. So by the time I got up there, they said, okay, you, you want to go play and you want to give the CFL a look. Um, here's who you're going to talk to. And, 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 and the BC lions had contacted me several times throughout my pro journey right so when i'm in between teams or got cut the first time i'd get a call from bc hey are you ready to come to canada no i'm still in the nfl doing this gig uh no i'm gonna go play in europe oh i signed with new orleans for a little bit uh, oh no i'm back in seattle on the practice squad you know so um they had been keeping an eye on me so i knew that they had some interest so that's how it went and so that spring of 2009 i finished that next year the, the 08 season with the seahawks holmgren left Jim Mora took over the head coach there. It's kind of a lost season uh, for Seahawks fans remembering that there was yeah. a coach there in between uh, Holmgren and Pete Carroll. We won't um, mention that though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So, so that's how it happened. So I went up there um, and just went up to to fight to make that team. So that was uh, that's what happened in '09. Oh, that's awesome. And it turned out awesome for you, as it turned out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So and you know what? It just it didn't happen overnight. I made that team. And then in 09, I served as a backup for most of the year, got on the field a couple of times. Then in 2010, I moved up to become the backup. I was a second stringer, um, and, but there were some injuries. So I started, you know, a few games early on in the season. And then about halfway through that season, they made the switch and they um, went to start playing me. We made a we made a run late in that season, made a playoff push. Uh, I entrenched myself as a starter going forward. And then in that 2011 season, that was like the storybook pro season um, for me as my first year as a starter in Canada. Um, in Vancouver, we were hosting the Grey Cup that year. Um, and we ultimately got hot, became a really good team, won first place in the West, hosted home playoff games, and then essentially hosted a home game in the gray cup. Um, and it was just a packed house full of orange lions fans. And, and we took the trophy home. So yeah, it was a pretty special year. That's awesome. So, you know, you mentioned it, you won the gray cup, you've won CFL player <clears throat> of the year, their MVP, gray cup MVP. What did all those successes mean to you as a player during your career? It meant a lot and it means more in hindsight, you know, again, it's one of those things we kind of caught up in the moment, but looking back, that was a pretty special thing to be a part of, um, you know, and for the reasons I said, being a home game, uh, having gone through being cut four times in the NFL, you know, I just remembered how badly I wanted an opportunity to be the guy on the field and in the locker room when I was just fighting to claw my way into a, you know, onto a pro roster. And so to kind of get over that hump, become the starter and then win a championship was um, 
you know, it was kind of a surreal moment, frankly. It's like, oh man, this is what I thought I could do. And we did it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so it was it was pretty darn special. And obviously I had I played for a number of seasons after winning that championship. We didn't win another one. I battled some injuries, uh, had some ups and downs, had some really great moments, had some low moments, um, you know, fighting some of those injuries off and whatnot. But, you know, by the end of it, I, I played 13 seasons professionally. You know, I walked away from the game, um, you know, relatively unscathed. My noggin was solid and all that stuff, right? And so, uh, you know, I consider myself one of the guys that I was lucky. I was lucky to have a, a long pro career. I had some really great moments um and then turned the chapter into <laughs> the rest of my life after my playing days were done <clears throat> that's awesome so you know you mentioned you mentioned your shoulder concussion how did you deal with coming back from those physically and mentally cuz that that mental part is almost i think probably tougher i think you i think you're right you're bang on with that i mean it was it w- it was a challenge um you know at the at the time i was just really committed to continuing Um, I just, I I was very aware that, you know, your time to do this, if this is a passion and this is a calling and a goal, um, that your time is limited, um, in doing that. So I just wanted to, you know, try to get my body healthy and, and play again as much as I could while teams still wanted me to play for them. Right. And so that was kind of my mindset. But the challenge is, um, is, uh, mentally, is being able to get yourself up and ready to do that again, knowing that that risk is still there. You know, you, you hurt a shoulder, hurt a knee, um, you come back and you could get hurt again first game back, right? That's the risk right. you're taking when you're playing. Um, so so that was always, that was a challenge. Um, but again, I guess that was my mindset. Look, uh, I'm going to give myself the opportunity to rehab. I'm going to recover as best I can, even if it doesn't lead to me continuing to play at least I'll give my body the best chance at being healthy in the years ahead. Right. That's really how I approached it. So I didn't put too much pressure on myself that I have to be back out there, but I did dangle that carrot. Like, Hey, this team still wants you to go play for them. I'm like, you get healthy. You can go have a few more moments out on that field. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of how I did it. I had a great support team. You know, my wife was always super supportive. Um, my, my, mother-in-law and my mom came up after surgery a few times and helped, you know, my wife with, we had young kids. <laughs> and so there, there were some, there were some moments there that were tough. Um, but, but again, that's kind of how I approached it and let's do this while I can. Uh, so that's what we did. That's awesome. So, you know, we've mentioned that you've had the opportunity to play in three different places in the world. So what are some differences in like the atmospheres of the European game and the Canadian game to our game here in America. Yeah, I'll tell you this. First thing I noticed playing in Europe was artificial noisemakers. <laughs> and I mean, people had uh, just different bells and drums and dinging things. And it was, it was very, very loud. It was kind of a tight soccer stadium. We were in Dusseldorf, Germany, playing against the Rhine fire. And there was major like, pyrotechnics before the game that I don't think are legal stateside, you know? Um, so that was, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, some of those European soccer fans, they hardly know at the time, anyhow, they hardly knew American football. Um, right. So they're just, they didn't know when to make noise and it wasn't quite the same educated crowd. Like we'd be on offense and I'm going like, you know, quiet down <laughs> if we're trying to call plays here. Um, so that was just a really fun experience. And then in Canada, uh, the CFL has just such tremendous history, you know, and, it depends where you're at in the U S how much people know about the the Canadian football league and what's going on up there. But 
man, um, the talent is way better than most people are aware. You know, it's like this out of sight, out of mind. You don't, you know, you don't think about it. Um, there's really good football players up there. And so that was the thing for, for me is, and frankly, because Dave Dickinson was playing in the Canadian football league when I was in college, I would see little blurbs in the local paper. I knew about it. I had a respect for Dave and who he was as a player. So I'm like, you know, in my mind, kind of built the CFL up to be this, this really cool league and opportunity. Right. And so it actually helped me a lot because a lot of guys go up there and like, Oh, I'm going to go up to the CFL and I'll just dominate and come back down and play in the NFL. And you get up to the CFL. I'm like, Holy cow. Like this is uh, this is a lot better level of competition than I thought. And if your mind's not right, I mean, you just, it's, it's competitive pro football. You get chewed up and spit right out. And that happened to so many guys that are big time college players or even NFL first round draft picks just come up there thinking they're going to walk over people and they just, they don't even make an impact in the league, you know? So, so for myself who just had a healthy respect for the level of competition up there, it just, it helped me you kind of be in the frame of mind to have some success up there on the field. <clears throat> That's awesome. So one thing I've noticed about the NFL is it's kind of priced itself out of the average everyday fan for tickets and yeah. everything like that. So have, do you think that the Canadian game is more affordable and more accessible to the everyday person? I do think so. I think that's how they try to market themselves. They don't want to run away from their fan bases. It is a blue collar fan base, um, especially depending on the town that you're in. And frankly, that's why the best markets in the Canadian football league are those um, kind of blue collar places, um, you know, Saskatchewan Rough Riders and uh, Calgary Stampeders and Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Those guys generally do a little bit better from a, you know, butts in the seats and, um, and, you know, fans sporting gear across the country than say the big cities of, of Montreal and, and Toronto and even Vancouver mm-hmm. kind of get lumped into that sometimes where there's so much going on in those big cities that the CFL is happening in the midst of the city rather than the CFL game being the attraction for what's happening locally. So, um, so I do think that's important in Canada and it will continue to be going forward that, you know, you keep this as something, even in the big cities that is everybody can go to, you can bring all your kids to the game. It's an affordable, fun family affair and there's marketing campaigns and every, and I worked on the business side for the football club for a year after I retired, actually, before I transitioned into, you know, private practice down here with my brother and father, um, <clears throat> that's, that's front of mind. We, we got to keep people bringing young people to these games, having fun and keeping it um, affordable and family friendly. For sure. I mean, I, again, being a Raiders fan of looked at trying to go down to Allegiant stadium. It's like, Nope, yeah. <laughs> not happening anytime soon. <laughs> it's, it's wild. You see that they post a thing. I think every week they show the highest ticket right in, in the NFL that weekend. And I mean, they're, people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for prime seats at NFL games. So yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. They've definitely made it to where everyday person can't go. <laughs> you could, you could probably get an affordable seat at a Panthers game or something. Huh? I, I mean, probably. <laughs> do the Raiders play in Carolina ever? You go fly to the East coast. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So what has been like the most impactful advice or guidance you've gotten from somebody that has helped you in your playing days and now in your professional career? Well, that's a loaded question. I'll, a couple of thoughts. I, um, but one, just wherever you are, be there. Um, you know, I always found that, like, for example, I'm playing in NFL Europe and 
you know, there was a few guys there that had kind of had the mindset, like, I don't care about this team. I'm trying to make this, I'm trying to make the Cleveland Browns roster or the, you know, Ravens roster. It's like, if you're not all in as a Berlin Thunder in this moment right now, you know, you're not going to maximize who you are and you're not going to maximize the opportunity to go be whatever you want to be. Um, so I've just always, that's always kind of struck me, right? Whether I'm, you know, I'm a small school, small town guy, and then I go to play in the FCS. So in the pro football world, I'm still a small school guy. Um, I'm undrafted free agent, uh, you know, all that stuff. It has always felt like, well, you know, none of that stuff matters when I'm here right now, it's me competing against you. Um, you know, and so, and the carries true to business, right? Like we're, we're in a small town, but we have the resources, you know, and investment management and financial planning that anybody else has. As long as I continue to educate myself, I'm on the forefront of laws and taxes. And I know how to communicate with folks. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, our level of service is going to be better than anybody's. Right. And so that mm -hmm. that's, that's just kind of a mindset that's always really stuck with me uh, specific to football seeing Matt Hasselbeck and Drew Brees, because uh, I spent a few months in New Orleans too. Those guys were like at the top of their game and the way they approached the locker room was a great lesson. Um, those guys, they weren't like, they didn't big time the practice squad guys. When I got to New Orleans, I'm a brand new guy. Drew Brees invited me to go um, to this charitable event he had the next day. He didn't need my help, right? He was just trying to include me on the team. So I just was able to kind of carry that same type of stuff forward. I'm making relationships with guys. They're all different walks of life, all different stages of their career. Um, embrace that locker room. You want a healthy locker room culture, whether that's, you know, in a, in a corporate room or in a locker room, um, that respect for the other individual and wherever they're at in their life and their journey um, creates a healthy atmosphere to give the whole group success. Right. And so, so those are some things and then just staying grounded, you know, I'm a faith filled guy. And um, so that's always been important to me. Um, just knowing that like this football thing was never the be all end all of my life. Right. It's just bigger than me. It's uh, you know, I'm a father first and husband um, you know, I want to live by those principles first and just being a living a life of integrity, you know, and, and being the same person in the locker room that you are, at home as a father or as a youth coach or whatever. Um, it's all the same. Um, so you're not putting on a different hat for this, a different environments that you're in. And, you know, uh, I guess, I'll, I guess relative to a lot of people in, you know, in the professional world here, um, still relatively young, <laughs> young being relative, but those things have served me well to this point in my life. That's awesome. So last year you were inducted into the Montana hall of fame what was that like to have that achievement and to have that recognition from the state of Montana? That was, it was pretty special. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's a, that's a cool organization that's, you know, started a few years ago and there's some tremendous names, um, you know, that have been inducted into the Montana football hall of fame. So it was, it was really fun to see some of those names kind of reflect on those guys' career journeys. Um, and being inducted next to, you know, some, um, some legends, um, guys that are in that Montana football hall of fame. Um, you know, so I don't take that lightly. I always kind of joke, you know, and they, there's multiple criteria for getting into the Montana football hall of fame. A lot of the guys are actually from the state of Montana and went on elsewhere, maybe played collegiately elsewhere, but all the guys that came through the Montana, um, um, university systems, right. um, are obviously eligible. So I, it was kind of my joke. It's like, Hey, I appreciate the, uh, 
Montana Football Hall of Fame, letting an Oregon boy in. Uh, like So it, I just always felt embraced by Montana and the fans at Montana State. And that was maybe a little extra validation um, by being inducted into that. But it's really, you know, it's a humbling honor. Again, it's something at the end of your career. Um, those types of things are, they are meaningful. You know, during, it's like, yeah, whatever recognition happens, I'm like, you're just laser focused on what you're doing and trying to win the next game. And at the end, it's like, oh, some other people thought, you know, you carried yourself and and did some things, enough right things along the way to that it's worth a mention. That's that's pretty humbling. That's awesome. So one of the roundabout ways that I got to you was through Rob Brown of Big Sky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's and, right. Um, he has done a few um, figurines for you in your time. So talk to me a little bit about how those and how those turned out. And... Yeah, I uh, I don't have any in my office here, uh, but I have one on my uh, uh, on a little bookshelf at home. Yeah, no, those are cool. Rob's, uh, I, you know, I think those have come up. Uh, he's done them for, you know, a different auction or people had requested one of myself done. And so he, he made a mock-up or two for me. I think I have one from him as a BC lion and one from him as a, you know, MSU Bobcat, maybe two from him as a Bobcat. Uh, but he just does awesome work. There's extreme attention to detail on those figures. I don't know if you've seen those yeah. uh, like in person, right? They're awesome. So it's kind of fun to take a look. I'm going like, Oh, did he really get my socks? Right. Did he get my cleats? Right. Did he, <laughs> you sure know, but he matched did. my little red <laughs> eyebrow hair and all that. So pretty cool. Um, Rob's a talented guy. It's obviously, Again, that's a gift of his that he shares with the uh, the broader sports world. So that's pretty cool. And he always uh, he's always been good to me and made a point to tag me and uh, and stuff. And so I can see his work as as it's come along. <clears throat> for sure. Well, hey Travis, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been awesome to talk to you and hear about your life, and just awesome to have you on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, it's fun chatting with you. And anytime, and you might appreciate this, Mitch. I. Uh, I got a recent birthday gift here. I got a Bobcat Yeti. So there you go. Go cats. Go cats. All right. Hey, thanks for your time tonight. You bet. Cheers. Cheers. Hey guys, Mitch here with wide left sports. And do I have a company I would love to highlight for you? It's called big sky customs. They make lifelike figurines of your playing days, which I think is awesome because every single person, once they're done with their playing days, they miss it. And, um, how cool would it be to have a lifelike figurine to commemorate that? And I mean, Rob goes down to the very minute details about it. It's awesome. And the best part is it's out of Montana. Um, so yeah, if you want to get one ordered, just go to his Facebook page, big sky customs and start a conversation with him about it. And hopefully you enjoy your lifelike figurine from big sky customs. <laughs>